0: Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett-Karnak.
1: I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today,
0: we bring you a special bonus during our month off to talk about the IPCC report that has so starkly laid out the reality of climate change that we're facing. And we speak to Professor Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State and one of the world's preeminent climate scientists. Thanks for being here. So we have taken a short break today from our holidays because this report is just cannot be ignored. And we'll bring Michael on in a minute. This is going to be a shorter episode just to bring you the details of what's really happened. Um, Would either of you like to kick off giving us a short reaction? I know, Christiana, in particular, you've been in the media a lot today talking about this report. Give us your top-line assessment of this stunning piece of work from the IPCC setting out more clearly than ever the reality that we're facing.
1: You know... For me, Tom, if I'm going to summarize um, the report, my gut summarizes the report by saying timeframes shortening, timeframes shortening. Uh, We have less time than we thought to do everything that we know we have to do. So the fact that this report clarifies that the 1.5 degree maximum temperature ceiling, let's call it, that we can afford to reach without major catastrophes on this planet is already sometime in the decade of the 30s is actually quite frightening quite frightening yeah and only points even more vehemently toward the need to halve our emissions by 2030 there is now no doubt that that deadline is on top of us
2: mm. No, it's a it's sort of kind of shocking, sobering document, uh, reading through it. I had a very strong sense that, you know, people have always talked about this kind of climate debate is over. The climate debate is finished. It's concluded. And now this is the time for leadership. UN Secretary General said this, um, said, you know, that the public and private sector must work together to ensure just and rapid transformation to a net zero global economy. This is, I think it marks, a you know, a baseline we reset now. And, um, I mean, Michael will talk about to the details of it, but I think fundamentally it should change the world and the way the world thinks, and, and it should provide a platform for us to come together. Tom, what do you think?
0: Well, I mean, I think a few things, right? I mean, what you just said is very interesting. It should provide a reset and a baseline from which we come together, right? The future should be different from the past. There should be a before this report and an after this report. The trouble is we've had various moments that have felt like that before and they've not been what they've needed to be. And as a result, the alarm has been sounded even more clearly. Um, I mean, just what I think is interesting, though, is the clarity of the science, the certainty Mm -hmm, of the science, mm -hmm. the, the degree of specificity that they can lay out what's coming if we don't get on top of this. And also I think, and this is something I'm really interested to talk to Michael about, this is, ha- this is completely different from other IPCC reports, right? The last formal report was 2013-2014. Now, extreme weather is in the news every day. And we've talked about yeah. on this podcast, you know, the fires in the west of the US, Siberia, Greece, uh, Turkey, all across Europe. I mean, this stuff is now happening every day. Flash floods in London, China, you know, people dying all over the place. I mean, this is now front of news feed, front of mind for many people. So we'll see. But it's possible that this level of clarity in the science dropping in to minds that are more opened to a world that is changing. I mean, we're getting very close to the moment where it's too late, but this has to cut through incredibly clearly if we're now going to turn the tide
1: well, that is the issue, right? Is it going to cut through? And does it cut through not only to our awareness, but actually to our action, right. to collective action on the part of governments, on the part of corporations, on the part of financial sector, on the part of all of us as global citizens, consumers, uh, and clients? Does it, cut, does it cut through to change our behavior and our decisions? That is the question. Yeah.
0: So there's no one better for us to talk to than michael mann who we've known for some time and is really one of the most distinguished climate scientists in the world um he's distinguished professor of atmospheric science at penn state and the director of the penn state earth system science center he is a frequent commentator in the media on climate science and he has been for many years having been a lead author on the ipcc third scientific assessment report back in 2001 co-authored research papers particularly the hockey stick curve that became so famous that drew the world's attention. His books have included The Tantrum That Saved the World, his latest book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. He is an incredibly thoughtful and clear communicator of the science. This being a bonus episode, um, we won't be back after the interview for any additional analysis. We think this conversation with Michael will speak for itself. We hope very much that this is a defining moment for the world and that you yourself as an individual also take this moment to take some deep commitments to do everything you can to turn it around. This is an emergency. We need to treat it like an emergency. Listen to this conversation with Michael. He's an inspiring person who can point us to the reality but also help us see the way out. We'll see you back in a few weeks. Thanks for joining us for this bonus episode.
1: Michael Mann, thank you so much for joining us on outrage and optimism on a very busy day for all of us where thank heavens there is so much media attention on this new uh, report from the IPCC but could we ask for the benefit of our listeners? Could you just step away for a second from the report and we'll soon get into it just to give us the context. How is this the working group one? Why is this one of the three reports that we're going to be seeing? How is it that we've gotten to the sixth assessment report? Just give us, you know, briefly the context of the progress of science and the reporting of it.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's great to be with you, Christiana, and it is, um, you know, an auspicious day uh, that we are seeing so much attention to the defining crisis of our time, which is the climate crisis, and. You know, you and I have both been in this um, for for some time now. Uh, For more
1: decades than we want to remember. (laughs) Absolutely,
3: absolutely. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, back in 1990, of course, uh, was the first uh, scientific assessment report of the IPCC. And as you say, there are three uh, different parts of the report. There's working group one, uh, the first uh, installment, which is the basic science, an assessment of the science Uh, underlying human-caused climate change. And then that's followed by the working group two report, the impacts report, which is about the projected impacts of climate change. And then finally, we get to working group three, the um, mitigation, report on mitigation. And uh, obviously, all of these reports are interconnected, so there's a lot of work. There has to be a lot of coordination between the working groups because the impacts, of course, based on climate models, that are described in the working group one report. So working group two feeds off of working group one, but working group three, um, mitigation, uh, there's fundamental science that we have to understand about what reductions in carbon emissions, for example, will limit warming to certain levels. And what levels uh, we're trying to avoid are of course informed by our assessment of the impacts Uh, that climate change is projected to have. Mm -hmm. So all of these things work together. There's a lot of coordination uh, between the three working groups, but they do come out in this order. And at every juncture, we've seen the science uh, become more decisive because we have more observations. Our measurements are getting longer so we can better see the signal emerging from the noise. Uh, Our models have become more detailed, more elaborate, more comprehensive. And so all of this works together to really ratchet up the, the degree of confidence in the science with each report. And unfortunately, as we continue to not yet quite see the action that we would have hoped to have seen, the impacts are getting worse and the challenge to limit carbon emissions becomes more difficult. So all of this has really ratcheted up with each successive IPCC report. And I feel like with this um, six assessment report, uh, we've reached a crescendo where the scientific community is literally yelling from the rooftops, dangerous climate change isn't some far off target. It's here now. And the question is, how bad... Are we willing to let it get? Uh, there is still time to prevent the worst impacts from taking place, but make no mistake, dangerous climate change impacts are here. All we have to do is turn on our television set um, and watch what's happening out in California with what is currently the second largest wildfire in California history, it may become the largest wildfire in California history, currently burning. All of these other extreme weather events, flooding events, heat waves that we've seen this summer really mm. drive home the the reality of the climate crisis. And this latest so, report... So,
1: so Michael, yeah. I'm, I'm in Colorado, a thousand miles away from California, and the sky here is dark. I uh, went hiking yesterday and could barely breathe, not only because I was at 9,000 feet, but because of the poor quality of the air. Uh, so, you know, that, that should really... Uh, really tell us that uh, we are heading into a very, very menacing uh, landscape here. I, I could now, smell
3: the smoke here in the eastern wow. U.S. Um, wow. Where, wow. When I was on vacation in Maine, I could smell the wildfire smoke all, in, the, way all the way across way up from the west. Yeah.
1: Wow. So, so Michael, um, understanding that each of these reports builds on each other um, and that all of the working one group reports, of which this is the sixth, also build on each other. Is it possible for you to tweak out what is new about this one? What actually you know, should make us just stop in our tracks and say, wow, that is something that we had not realized?
3: Yeah, there were a few key um, developments that struck me with this latest report. And as we know, the report is an assessment of the existing scientific literature. So to be perfectly honest, it, it, it never really catches Those of us uh, who work in the science by surprise, because we sort of know what has to be in there. And yet, when you see it um, laid out in the pages of the summary for policymakers, um, when you see the diagrams and the figures, and and it really drives home um, the reality of what we're seeing, uh, I was struck by just the way that this latest report connects the dots um, on, on climate change and extreme weather events. You know, in, in previous uh, versions of the report, there was always this sort of hemming and hawing, yes, you know, we can't blame any one event on climate change, but it is collectively. Be- We've seen that reticence sort of now dissipate as we now can do detection and attribution. We can talk quantitatively about how much more likely a particular extreme weather event was made by climate change. And we can now say that the events that we've seen play out this summer, the Pacific Northwest Heat Dome, the wildfires in California, the floods in Europe we simply wouldn't have been seeing this in the absence of human-caused warming of the planet. And for the first time, the IPCC Working Group One is more or less saying that. We're saying, yeah, we can blame these events on climate change. Uh, To me, that was very striking. And, And there's a figure in the Working Group One summary for policymakers that really drives that home. Uh, The hockey stick, as I said, that we published, uh, you know, 20 years ago, it appeared in the the third assessment report, showing you know how unprecedented recent warming is in the context of the last thousand years. Well, the latest report has a much longer hockey stick. They go back two thousand years with with confidence. The blade has gotten longer. The the handle goes further back in time and the blade has gotten longer because we've continued to warm. And so I actually have a a piece that appeared today in Time magazine that compares the 2001 third assessment report summary for policymakers hockey stick and this much more – intimidating hockey stick that we see now. looks like a scythe,
2: Uh, Michael.
3: (laughs) Well, it it does. You can, you know, describe it, you know, whatever sports implement you want to use or whatever, (laughs) uh, you know, utensil you want to compare it to. It is, um, it's a terrifying figure because it really drives home the unprecedented impact. Um, And if you read the fine print, they actually say, there's a good chance that the warming we're seeing right now is unprecedented over a much longer time frame. Uh, All uh, the way past the last ice age, more than 100,000 years in in time, we don't quite have the quantitative data to, to quantify that in the same way we can the more recent past. But the IPCC comes pretty close to saying we're pretty sure that this warming is unprecedented over a much longer time frame than that. And so it really do, does drive home... Geez the unprecedented impact that we are having on, yeah. on this planet. Right. So Michael, I mean it's 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 so alarming and going going through the
0: report you sort of you're struck by just the lateness of the hour and how how far we've come and and and, and as you've described so eloquently, you know, just the 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 irrefutable nature of this, but the truth is that each of these reports has been incredibly concerning. And to a large degree, the community of decision makers who had to do something about this, it's unfair to say they completely ignored the advice, but they didn't do what was necessary. This, I mean, dare I say it, and I'd love to hear your analysis, feels different. And it feels like this is landing in a different way. I'd love to know first, do you agree with that? And then why? And the second question to that is what happens next?
3: Yeah, great question. Um, you know, in, in my own recent book, The New Climate War, which came out uh, earlier this year, I sort of described the reasons why I think things are different. Even before this report came out, things feel different. Um, and it's the youth climate movement that has mm-hmm. really changed mm-hmm. this conversation. Mm-hmm. It took our children protesting mm-hmm. in the streets to wake us up to, to the reality that, uh, that we face and to open our eyes to the deep ethical quandary Uh, of the proposition that we're destroying this planet uh, for for future generations. And that those who had the least role in creating this problem, future generations, uh, the, you know, will pay uh, the highest price. Yeah. Yeah. And developing countries um, outside of the industrial world will pay the highest Mm -hmm. price. And they had the least role in creating the problem. So more, I think that Now, the conversation, and so many of us have wanted to shift the conversation in the direction, but it's finally happened, where it's not just about the science and the economics and the policy and the politics. It's about the ethics, the fundamental ethics of what we're doing to this planet. And I feel like all these things have come together. The fact that the impacts of climate change are so obvious that they're literally striking us in the face. We're seeing them play out in real time on our television screens. The change in the conversation because of the youth climate movement and the larger conversation about social justice and racial justice and how it intersects with um, the climate crisis. And uh, frankly, some favorable shifts in the political winds here in the United States, where we now have a president who doesn't dismiss climate change as a hoax, um, and who has now retaken a position of leadership on the world stage, mm-hmm. um, and that's bringing other yeah. players to the table. All of those things have come together in, you'll forgive me, sort of a perfect storm of the good kind <laughs> of consequences that, that put us, I think, in the most favorable position that we've been in um, since I've been part of the conversation, and that's now several decades to, to really finally see the action that we need I do feel like something has changed and this report just adds to that and the and the coverage that it's getting just adds to that feeling
1: yeah yeah um, Paul wants to come in but um sorry Paul if I can just step in just to um push Michael one 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 degree deeper into what he's just shared with us because we have seen Michael that these IPCC reports, Come um, are published at strategic moments before very critical climate change meetings. And this is another one of those. COP26 is the uh, conference of the parties this year in which what we call the ratchet mechanism is going to be tested for the first time, i.e. when countries have to come to the table with their increased efforts. Um, And here we have it, right? Science calling us all to account. So... um, can you can you extend your uh, dare I call it optimism that we're in a different uh, landscape now to cop twenty six do you think that the publication of the ipCC of the working group one of the ipCC report today is actually going to make a substantial difference for cop twenty six
3: yeah, and I should say by the way uh, christiana your your wonderful new book uh, as well we we didn't coordinate we didn't compare notes. And yet, I think we, we both have a very similar feeling, that there's great urgency, but there's also still agency. We, we can make a difference. Um, but you're right, so much uh, hinges on this next meeting. I mean, at every one of these, we've said, well, this is make or break, but this one really is, because the window of opportunity left to hold warming below what the IPCC reports, the new reports lay out, truly catastrophic level of warming, one and a half degrees Celsius, that window is rapidly disappearing. It hasn't yet evaporated, but it's going to require dramatic action. And it's going to require not just audacious pledges. And we've seen some pretty good pledges by the United States uh, now, uh, uh, the, the Biden administration to bring our emissions down by factor two within the next decade. Um, similarly, bold emissions from the EU, from uh Uh, from the UK under Boris Johnson. Um, Australia is a bit of a straggler, Scott Morrison. um, There's some players that haven't quite yet come to the table, but we're seeing some really bold pledges, yet there's still this, what we call the implementation gap, that the actions and the policies don't yet measure up to those obligations, to those pledges. So yes, we need bold pledges to be agreed upon at uh, COP26 in Glasgow, but more than that, each of the countries needs to be implementing policies that can actually get us there. Here in the United States, the Biden administration has done pretty much everything they can do from an executive standpoint. What we need to codify and to complement their efforts is legislation. Mm. And that requires getting a major climate bill or set of bills through Congress. And we're literally having that debate right now, this $3.5 trillion reconciliation package that will ultimately decide whether or not Democrats can get meaningful climate legislation through the Congress within the next two years that'll complement what the Biden administration is doing and allow us to make good on our obligations.
2: Thank you, Michael. I mean, we, 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 uh, we need to hope and believe, as I do, that um, uh, Democrats and Republicans um, you know, don't argue with science. Um, the science has kind of spoken. And thank you also for your leadership through such turbulent times that now oh, you, you. Uh, must feel in, a, in, a, in an unfortunate way vindicated. But uh, I wanted to ask you a question about, uh, you know, the the nature of this uh, report. As you said, it's existing science, but it, it now carries the imprimatur. It carries the weight, the force of yeah. of an intergovernmental panel basically kind of all governments now back this science. So my yeah. question is really how how you know we have tens of thousands of listeners working in business, in corporations, working in local government, national government, NGOs, investors, how can uh, people use this report to to drive forward the kind of action that's required.
3: Yeah, and let me just say, I mean what, what's impressive about the report is is how Strident, it really is, um, the language, the, the terms in which the problem is laid out. And, and, and that had to survive, you know, petrostates like Saudi Arabia um, that do everything they can to try to water down that language at that final plenary of the, for the summary for policymakers. It had to survive, you know, the collective, um, you know, efforts by a number of uh, somewhat intransigent countries to try to water down the report. But the scientists stood firm. They said, this is what the science says, and that's what the report is going to say. Um, But these reports, by their nature, tend to be conservative, just because of the nature of the process. You've gotta get thousands of scientists around the world uh, agreeing, basically, on the bottom line. Um, It's sort of a lowest common denominator in that sense.
1: And 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 then get the politicians to agree. And
3: then get the politicians (laughs) it has gotta survive the assault by the politicians (laughs) at the final plenary. So when something comes out of that process, that is as strident as, as this report is. Yep. Um that tells you something. Um this is as close as you're ever going to see to watching the scientists of the world screaming at the top of their lungs from the top of the tallest buildings. That's what yep. we're seeing right now.
2: Wow. That's a very powerful image. And I guess they then hand over the baton, right? I mean, you know, um, the UN Secretary General said that you know businesses should be measuring and disclosing their risks and mitigating and taking action. I mean, how does you know how does it? How do we come together now? Because this is a moment for us yeah. to come together, right? The the the, the debate's yeah. over, right? Now it's the time for us to come together. I know, yeah. you know, in 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 wartime, all the political parties get together to to to, to solve the problem. How do you see the cross-party coalitions getting built?
3: Yeah, it's a a great question. And, you know, and government, as we know, plays a crucial role here because individuals, we can only do so much. Sure, we can change our individual behavior um, in ways to try to minimize our environmental uh, impact and our carbon footprint. But we can't, you know... Put in place subsidies for renewable energy. We, we can't put a price on carbon. We can't block new fossil fuel infrastructure. This is only something that our governments can do and that um, intergovernmental uh, agencies and organizations, and we've seen some movement uh, by the G7 countries, and that's mm-hmm. a good sign. Um, they've come together and said there can be no more uh, coal uh, I- infrastructure built if we are to remain, you know, keep the warming below these catastrophic levels. The IEA, a, the International Energy Agency, which has often been very conservative in its projections yeah. of renewable energy. They've always underestimated the remarkable- always. They Always, at every juncture. Um, and yet, they've come out and said, look, it's still doable. We can make this transition, but it's going to require no new fossil fuel infrastructure. It's a remarkable statement coming from the IEA. <laughs> I mean, they're basically saying, you've got to stop building the industrial world and the developing world alike. We have to stop building this fossil fuel infrastructure. For the industrial world, that's that means we've got to decarbonize our economy we've got the tools to do that and we've got the resources to do that for the rest of the world we've got the industrial world uh, and and the the wealthiest nations have to provide resources to mm-hmm. them to help them through this transition because we can't afford for india to develop a fossil fuel grid for a billion yeah. people we can't afford other countries to go down this unfortunate road that we went down of, of centuries of um you know dirty energy that we use to build our economies, but at the expense of, of the planet. We've got to provide incentives and assistance to the rest of the world so that they can meet their basic needs, they can grow their economies, um, in a sustainable way that doesn't threaten the planet, uh, and so and we saw some movement in that direction at the I at the uh, G seven conference as well. So these are good signs. Not enough, and we, I would say, Michael. Not, not, not enough.
1: enough. Not, not, enough, enough. G7, not enough movement no. at G seven. Not enough movement at G twenty. No. Uh, you know, no. I I wonder would have G seven come out. Well, and they just
3: said coal. Coal yeah. isn't the whole thing. What about natural Coal's gas is not? What the about- whole thing?
1: And, yeah. and G twenty couldn't agree on on, you know, taking coal out. Um so it is really concerning because there is this huge gap, right, between what scientists are screaming from the rooftops, yep. as you have told us, and what we as um individuals, whether we are responsible for our country, for our corporation, for our city, for our family, for our individuals, honestly. All the rest of us are not meeting the challenge of the time. We are not acting from the top of our rooftops. We're acting from the basement. And there's a huge gap there because yep. we are still into marginal improvement and the time yep. calls for drastic change. So how is, is there any thought among the scientific community about how to whack us all over the head and get us to
3: <laughs> drastic
1: changes?
3: <laughs> well, you make such a good point, Christiana, right? Because I talked about the implementation gap, but there are two gaps here. There's the commitment gap, the gap between what the science tells us we have to do and what commitments countries are making. And then there's the gap, the implementation gap between those commitments And what policies they're actually putting in place. So we're dealing with two gaps, not just Mm -hmm. one. Yes. And both of them are yawning gaps. Um, And so it does speak to the monumental distance between what needs to happen and and what is happening. The good news is, you know, we're, we're starting to see actions you know, uh, we're starting to see sort of this turn in the right direction. Carbon emissions have flattened. That's good, but they've got to come way down. Flattening down, isn't enough. Right. They've got to come down to zero and they've got to do so quickly. So, you know, I, I hope, um, and I, and I, I wrote a, a, a in a commentary I wrote uh, today for Time Magazine, uh, I, I said at the very end that, you know, I hope that this report is that rallying cry, mm. that we have mm-hmm. to get serious and we have to do it Now. You have to do it now. Indeed, you're never going to see scientists ever be as forceful and strident as you're seeing right now from the climate research community. It's just not going to happen. So, this is as close as scientists are ever going to come. Because of their to whacking reasons. us over the head. To <laughs> whacking us over the head. That's what they're doing. As far as they're concerned, <laughs> yeah. they are doing that today.
0: <laughs> which is which is very inspiring, but it's also kind of alarming because right, this is it. This is the strength of the stick. So if this doesn't work, then we don't know what's going to happen. But um, hopefully this will work. We have to ask you, um, the podcast is called Outrage and Optimism. We call it that because we think these are both needed. This is a day with a lot of news that is news to many people. It's a tough day. Do you yeah. feel more outraged or more optimistic at the end of this day? Do you feel like actually, you know, this is a moment for outrage or do you still feel we can pull this through?
3: Well, I think in this conversation we've just had here, uh, there's been no shortage of either outrage, <laughs> um, righteous, righteous outrage, I should say, righteous outrage and, and, and cautious optimism. Right. Um, so both, mm. both are needed. Both are relevant. Both are justified. Um, yes, yes. We're starting to see some movement. It isn't nearly enough. So let this report be that rallying cry, um, and let's all do everything we can today and for the remaining you know months of this year to make sure that it is right. Fantastic. Well,
1: if I were religious, I would say amen.
3: <laughs> so thank
1: you so much. I think
3: it's okay. I think we can we can appropriate <laughs> we can that, use that term in this amen. context. We here, can here. use
1: that. Thank you so much, Michael, for thank taking you. time in a very, very busy day for you and for all of us. Thank you so much.
3: Well, thank you to all of you for, for what you're doing. It, it was great to talk with you and I look forward to um, you know, this being an ongoing conversation.
2: Bye for now, Michael. Thank you. Bye, Bye folks. Thanks. Thanks so
3: much.
1: Thanks, Michael. Bye. Hey
4: everyone, it's Clay, producer, Just a quick word before this bonus episode ends, thank you to Michael Mann for joining us on such short notice and on a very busy day. I've got a link to his books for you to check out in the show notes, including his newest release, The New Climate War, which is a great read, as well as an article he wrote that was published today in Time Magazine, link for that too. And one last thing, if you are a visual person, you know it's how you learn, it's how you share, it's how you communicate, Nice work on making it to the end of an audio only podcast, but also the IPCC has a YouTube channel where you can watch today's press conference and the IPCC has launched today an interactive atlas where you can apply the report's models and projections to where you live. I can't recommend checking that out enough. It helps bring the graphs and numbers a bit more to life for people like me. Okay, link for that in the show notes. We'll see you in a few weeks. Stay true. Thanks for listening.